Hello, I'm Alec, and this is Scandal 101. Happy February, happy Black History Month. Yeah, (laughs) I don't have a lot to say going into this episode. This week has been crazy busy with school. My friend, she said that, you know, I feel like January took a year off my life and I relate to that. (laughs) So hopefully this month will be a little less crazy. In terms of scandal updates, the biggest one I've seen in the news recently is the Joe Rogan podcast Spotify scandal in terms of misinformation with a guest he had on, and then other things have been coming out with like videos of him saying the n-word and great fun stuff like that. I think he put out a statement addressing it saying that maybe he needs to screen his guests more before and I've seen a lot of people canceling their Spotify subscriptions because they don't like the fact that Spotify is allowing that podcast on their platform which has COVID-19 misinformation. I saw in one article, I think it was talking about one of the things he was saying was like the COVID vaccine modifies your genetic structure, which isn't the case. So I mean, there's definitely instances of misinformation about COVID. But on the flip side, it's the difficult balance of like encouraging free speech and different thought. And it's like, how much different thought do we want if that different thought may prohibit or not prohibit, but like may turn people against getting a vaccine or they may believe wrong things about a deadly virus that's going around. So it's just interesting to see what's going on with all that. Obviously, you don't want to spread misinformation. But at the same time, people have a right to free speech. I don't know. I mean, it would be nice if there were just no misinformation regarding anything, not just COVID, but anything. But free speech is a difficult thing. And it's a difficult concept, especially when that freedom of speech allows for misinformation or allows for potentially harmful or hurtful things to be said. But yeah, that's really the main scandal I've seen in the news that's been like the biggest thing. The last thing I'll say before I dive into like the episode and the sources is I've seen some updates on episodes that I've already done. Like I think there was an update with the Volkswagen emission case. There was an update with the Iowa lottery case. So I think what I might do mm, sometime in the next month, I'll still do a normal episode on a Friday, but maybe I'll put out an additional episode like on a Monday or Tuesday or something. Just like, hey, here are some updates on the scandals that I've already done. So that will probably happen within the next month, just so you know. And with that, you saw the episode title when you clicked on it, but this episode is titled Edward Snowden and the NSA Leak. And the sources I used for this episode, I used a couple of Guardian articles by Glenn Greenwald. I used an independent article by L. Hall that came out this past year, a New York Times article by P. Mass, and then the Wikipedia page about this scandal. 
Our story for this episode centers around a man who was named in the title, but you may have heard of him before this. His name is Edward Snowden. Some background on Edward so we know who we're talking about. Edward was born on June 21st, 1983, making him 38 years old now. But at the time of this whole thing going on, he was 29. Edward has been described as the most wanted man in the world a patriot, a whistleblower, a dissenter, and a hero. So lots of names meaning lots of things. (laughs) Let's get into it. Edward grew up in North Carolina as well as Maryland, and growing up, his family was heavily involved in either the armed forces or in the government. So for example, his grandfather was a senior official at the FBI and he was at the Pentagon when 9-11 happened. His dad was an officer in the Coast Guard. His mother is a clerk in the U.S. District Court for District of Maryland, and his sister was a lawyer at the Federal Judicial Center in Washington, D.C. So with all that government, armed forces, family influence, it only seemed natural that he would go into government work, and he even said himself that he expected to go into work uh, for the federal government, just like the rest of his family. When he, was, when he was in high school, he had mononucleosis, which caused him to miss months of class, so he got his GED instead of graduating because of this. He then took classes at a community college, and then with no undergraduate degree, he started working toward an online master's degree at the University of Liverpool in England. When Edward was a young man, which I guess he's still kind of young, but when he was younger than he is now, he felt obligated to do his part when the Iraq war started, so he enlisted in the army, but due to a bilateral tibial stress fracture, he didn't complete the training, so he was discharged. He then started working as a security guard at the University of Maryland's Center for Advanced Study of Language, which is a research center sponsored by the NSA, and... This research center, it's not a classified site, but it is heavily guarded. So he's doing that, he's having fun being a security guard, I'm sure, and then in 2006, he went to a job fair that focused on intelligence agencies, and he got a position at the CIA. And he apparently had no trouble getting this job because he was a, quote, computer wizard, end quote. He eventually resigned from the CIA, and then he started to work for Dell as a contractee, quote, which manages computer systems for multiple government agencies, end quote. He grew quickly in the ranks there, he was learning new things, he was climbing positions, and he eventually, like, got to such a high position where he was being consulted by the chiefs of the CIA's technical branches. So he was the go-to guy. And remember in 2013, when this whole thing breaks, he's 29. So I guess in 2009, he would have been like 25. So this, he's very smart is what I'm saying. Very young as well, but just very smart to have that capability. He eventually, in 2012, was reassigned to Hawaii to serve as lead technologist for the NSA's information sharing office, and at this point, he was still working for Dell, so just like keep that in your mind. He just got transferred to a different area. And then on March 15th, 2013, Edwards said that is when he reached his quote, breaking point, end quote, when the director of national intelligence, James Clapper, directly lied under oath to Congress. 
Edward then quit his job at Dell and he worked for a consulting firm firm named Booz Allen Hamilton where he worked to gather data and then he his plan was he was going to release it to the world regarding the NSA's worldwide surveillance activity. So more getting into how he released the data and how this all went down that's just some background on him and kind of how he got to where he was and then I am going to talk about later more in depth of what he was seeing that he wasn't happy about. While Edward was working at Booz Allen Hamilton in Hawaii, it was the operations center that focused on electronic monitoring of China and North Korea, so definitely not an easy task. He said his job was, quote, to look for new ways to break into internet and telephone traffic around the world, end quote. So Edward, he's working around all this data, he's doing all these things, and he's not happy with what he's seeing, with what he's observing the NSA do, so he decided to do something about it. Edward had apparently been growing the motivation to leak NSA documents since 2007, and reminder, this is in the year 2013, so when you're thinking about potentially leaking classified government documents, what's the best way to do it? Talk to the press. One of the main journalists in this story, her name is Laura Poitras. Um, She is not your average journalist, your average reporter. In 2004, she went to Iraq and began documenting the United States occupation there. She filmed a documentary following a doctor in Baghdad titled My Country, My Country, and the documentary, it focused on the doctor's family and the problems that they faced, such as the shootings and the blackouts in in their neighborhood, as well as the kidnapping of their nephew. So this doctor's family was not only seeing the effects of the United States occupation there, but they were also dealing with the fact that their nephew had been kidnapped. What Laura was trying to do is she was trying to tell the story of the Iraq war from the Iraqi citizens' side, but that made her a target. For example, there was a raid by Iraq forces and the United States military of a mosque where several people were killed, and then the next day, the neighborhood where this raid had taken place erupted into violence because all those people who were in the neighborhood and the relatives of people who died in the mosque were like, um, what the heck? So it erupted into violence, and she was on the roof with the doctor's family watching this all unfold, and she was filming, and when all of this violence took place, there was an attack where an American citizen was killed, and it was alleged that she knew that the attack was going to happen and climbed on the roof to film it and then to also avoid being killed. There were people who were interviewed in terms of trying to figure out if she knew about this attack, but what Laura had to say about this was, quote, I am a documentary filmmaker and was filming in the neighborhood. Any suggestion I knew about an attack is false. The U.S. government should investigate who ordered the raid, not journalists covering the war, end quote. She was put on a watch list and would be questioned by law enforcement when going back to the, to the United States, and she was conveniently interrogated at an international border crossings where the government says constitutional rights do not apply, so she did not have the right to a lawyer there. She had to start taking precautions with her notes and her data, like on the computer, she had to encrypt all of her devices, she had to go through all these precautions, do security protocols, so she couldn't be easily digitally followed with her things, because what she was working on, 
she felt like was important and it's important to have stories from different areas of the world but it seemed like the United States government kind of made her a target. And the reason I tell you all this is one to show you that she is someone who is very dedicated to what she's doing. She is someone who really cares about her work. And I also wanted to give you an example of something that is going to kind of prove Edward Snowden's point of how intrusive the US government could be. So Laura, she's being this awesome reporter, doing all these cool things, and one day in January of 2013, she received an email asking for her public encryption key, and my understanding of what this was is just so she could communicate with encrypted emails and not have to worry as much about being tracked and all that good stuff. So she responded to the email, and this person sent her a response back, and the person emailing Laura required long passwords, there was encrypted messages, and finally, after jumping through all of these hoops, this message came through, and it was an encrypted message outlining a number of secret surveillance programs run by the U.S. government. Because Laura was someone who not only reported on the U.S. government, but also intelligence programs in the government, she knew about one of these, but there were other ones that she had never heard of. And she, as, as we could tell from her work, she was a hardcore journalist. So the fact that she didn't know about these was kind of like, whoa, what's going on here? The person emailing, the person emailing Laura... They said that they could prove that all of this was real, and after emailing back and forth, Laura thought to herself, quote, I just knew that I had to change everything, end quote. She kept in contact with this person, but at first she was kind of worried that it might be a government agent trying to trick her into giving up information, such as like people she had interviewed and her sources and all that good stuff. But eventually, she started to trust this person because not only were they providing classified government documents, but they were never asking her for information. They were never like, hey, I saw you wrote this story. Can you tell me more about it? Like, they were just like, I have this information. I need your help. So she started to trust this person. Obviously, when you're dealing with classified information, it's not only a risky task, but it's also probably pretty daunting. And the person that Laura was communicating with was like, hey, I need you to work with someone else. And that person is Glenn Greenwald, someone who at the time worked for The Guardian. Just briefly about Glenn, he was a former attorney who focused a lot of his attention on freedom of speech cases, and then he transferred to become a blogger, then became like an internet writer, and eventually to a reporter. Part of the reason that this person wanted Laura to reach out to Glenn is because Glenn had been the first person that was reached out to, but Glenn had said he was annoyed with how complicated the encryption was, all the hoops he was having to jump through, so it was just kind of like, yeah, I'm not going to deal with this. And then this person reached out to Laura. So this person's like, hey, Laura, thanks so much for your help. I want your help, but you also need to get Glenn in on this. Laura and Glenn, they met in person, and they started looking at these documents that Laura had been sent, and then after they started working together, some documents were also being sent to Glenn. The documents kept coming, the communications with this mysterious person continued, and eventually, a meeting was set up. 
an encrypted message was sent which told them to go to Hong Kong, and on the way there, they were reading through some more of these documents, and one of them was quite shocking. It was a secret court order requiring Verizon to give its customers' phone records to the NSA. This happening, um, phone companies giving their customers information to the NSA and other intelligence agencies, it had been rumored, but it was never confirmed, as well as the government has had always denied collecting phone records. So the government was basically like, hey, we know there's this crazy rumor going around that we're collecting phone information from phone companies, and oh my gosh, you all are so quirky and different, but no, we're not doing that. But this NSA document is saying, oh, guess what? Verizon gives its customer phone records to the NSA. So if this was true, this was going to be huge. Once they got to Hong Kong, the instructions to meet this person was something that would come out of a spy movie, and I love it. They were instructed to stand outside of a restaurant in a mall that was connected to a hotel, and they were to wait there until a man with a Rubik's Cube came. When the man with the Rubik's Cube walked by, came by, they were to then ask him when the restaurant would open, and the man with the Rubik's Cube would answer the question and then would say the food was bad. So Laura and Glenn, they're waiting outside this restaurant, when, you guessed it, our mysterious person we've been talking about, 29-year-old Edward Snowden, walked up. At first, both reporters were pretty shocked at how young he was, especially someone who had this much access to information. But despite their hesitations, they went back to Edward's room, Laura pulled out her camera, and Glenn started asking questions. And for the next week, this is what their protocol was. Quote, When they entered Edward's room, they would remove their cell phone batteries and place them in the refrigerator of Edward's minibar. They lined pillows against the door to discourse eavesdroppers from outside, and then Laura would set up her camera and film. It was important to Edward to explain to them how the government intelligent machinery worked because he feared that he could be arrested at any time. End quote. While they were interviewing Edward, they were also starting to write articles, and one article was published while they were still interviewing Edward. It was titled, quote, NSA collecting phone records of millions of Verizon customers daily, end quote, and it was written by Glenn. The article detailed, and of course this information in the article is coming from the documents that were released, it was in detailed in the article that Verizon was required to give over phone records on a, quote, ongoing daily basis, end quote, and that the records were to be given over of everyone, all customers, regardless of if they were the suspects of any wrongdoing, the suspects of any crime. It was legit every Verizon customer, we need your phone records. We need your, I'm assuming text records also went in there, but it's just, we need your customer records of literally all of your customers. The Guardian, where the article was published, it asked for a comment before publishing from the White House, the NSA, and the Department of Justice, but when I read the article, I didn't see anything from any of them, so my guess is they just didn't comment on it. And one interesting thing from the court order that I thought was interesting is that the document that was released, it said that Verizon was barred from disclosing to the public, quote, either the existence of the FBI's request for its customers' records or the court order itself, end quote. And a Washington-based Verizon spokesperson declined to comment for the article. 
I think, I mean, everyone jokes about the FBI being in their phone, but I think this is kind of where that came from because when this came out, it was like, oh, legit, the FBI has all of our phone records regardless of if we're a suspicious person or not. I think they're like, oh, FBI agent, are you listening in my phone? I think this is kind of where that came from. This article was getting a lot of attention, of course, because why wouldn't it? It's shocking to learn that, especially if you're a Verizon customer in the United States. And Edward, Laura, and Glenn, they said that they were excited to see how much attention the article was getting. One of the videos that they had filmed with Edward was also released, and that was his kind of official statement publicly claiming him to be the source of the leaks. In the video, Edward was asked to describe the way in American intelligence agencies worked, and he said, quote, NSA and the intelligence community in general is focused on getting intelligence wherever it can, by any means possible, that it believes on the grounds of a self-certification that they serve the national interest. Now, increasingly, we see intelligence gathered domestically. The NSA targets the communications of everyone. It ingests them by default, it collects them in the system, and it filters them, and it analyzes them, and it stores them for periods of time simply because that's the easiest, most efficient, and most valuable way to achieve those ends. So while they may be intending to target someone associated with a foreign government or someone that they suspect of terrorism, they are collecting your communications to do so. End quote. Edward talked about how he had the authority to wiretap literally everybody from the average person all the way up to a federal judge. And in the video, he was like, even the president, if I had a personal email, I could easily wiretap. I could tap that person's communications, no problem. So he was someone who had a lot of authority and he was just one person who worked for the NSA. When he was asked why he wanted to leak these documents, and not only leak these documents, but to come forward and go public and claim to be the person who did it, he said, quote, I think that the public is owed an explanation of the motivations behind the people who make these disclosures that are outside of the democratic model. When you are subverting the power of government, that's a fundamentally dangerous thing to democracy. If you do that in secret, consistently, as the government does when it wants to benefit from a secret action that it took, It'll give its officials a mandate to go, hey, you know, go tell the press about this thing or that thing so the public is on our side. But then rarely, if ever, they do that when an abuse occurs. That blame falls to individual citizens, but they're typically maligned and it becomes a thing where those people are against the country, they're against the government, but I'm not. I am no different than anybody else. I don't have any special skills. I'm just another guy who sits there day to day in the office, watches what's happening, and goes, this is something that's not our place to decide. The public needs to decide whether these programs and policies are right or wrong, and I'm willing to go on the record to defend the authenticity of them and say, I didn't change these, I didn't modify the story, this is the truth, this is what's happening, you should decide whether we should be doing this. End quote. After the video and the article was published, and in the video it was like, hey, this is filmed in Hong Kong, everyone in Hong Kong was like, oh my gosh, we gotta find him, yay, we love him, or we don't love him because he's ruining secrets, so everyone wanted to find him and the reporters. Edward, he went into hiding, Laura flew back to Berlin where she didn't have to worry about the FBI showing up so she could edit her documentary. 
Another article was published about Microsoft giving the NSA access to encrypted messages. The article and the documents that went with the article, it shows that Microsoft helped the NSA get around its encryption protocol to address concerns that the NSA may have. The NSA collected Skype calls, and it also showed how Microsoft worked with the FBI to allow the NSA easier access to its cloud storage system called SkyDrive. So that quote-unquote SkyDrive or iCloud Drive that was apparently supposed to be secure, and I'm not implicating Apple with this, but, you know, the cloud that everyone's like, oh my gosh, the cloud is so magical, and I love it, and it's safe and secure. This article and these documents were like, hey homies, Microsoft, it worked with the FBI and the NSA, and now everyone who uploaded everything there, they have access to it. At this point, it's June, late June 2013, so all of this it happens in like a span of six months from the time he contacts the reporters to the time all this is coming out. Only about six months has passed. Edward, he flew to Russia and he was eventually planning to go to Cuba, but on his way to Russia, the United States had canceled his passport. And they had canceled his passport after publicly announcing criminal charges against him. And there was a total of three felonies. He was charged with theft of government property, unauthorized communication of national defense information, and willful communication of classified intelligence information to an unauthorized person. Each of those charges, they carried a maximum of 10 years in prison, which is like, LOL, you can uh, divulge national secrets, but you can get a life sentence for pr uh, having marijuana on you. Very cool. Love that. Different episode, different topic, but just wanted to point that out. So he's in Russia, his passport's canceled, he can't go anywhere. He's starting to seek asylum in different countries because if he goes back to the United States, he's going to be arrested, probably interrogated, and probably, my opinion, is he would probably be taken to a black site so that way he has no rights and they can get whatever they want out of him. Four countries initially offered him asylum, and those countries were Ecuador, Nicaragua, Bolivia, and Venezuela, but there was no direct flights to, the, to those countries, and he was worried about an interference from the U.S. government when he would have to, like, switch planes or whatever. And then he was forced to seek asylum in Russia, which eventually was granted, and before doing this or while doing this, he applied for political asylum to 21 different countries. And Edwards said that at uh, the vice president at the time, Joe Biden, Ayo Joe, um, Edwards said Joe had pressured government officials where he was applying to not allow him to have asylum there. So he's like, hey, I've applied to all these places. And it's interesting because it's seeming like the vice president is saying, mm, nope, Please don't let him in there. But he eventually got asylum in Russia. And kind of some updated information on him. He was dating someone when all of this happened. She was kind of the center of the press attention for the for a while. And they still continue dating. And they got married in 2017. And as far as I can tell, both of them live in Russia now. Okay, so let's talk about the aftermath of all of this. I only talked about two of the things that came out, two of probably the more shocking things, but it was estimated that Edward downloaded around 1.5 million documents. 
He talked about how he downloaded documents that if he wanted to, he could have easily sold them to different countries to undermine the intelligence of the United States. But he was like, that wasn't my goal. My goal was not to be a traitor of the United States. My goal was not to help collapse the country. My goal was to show that the United States is infringing on people's personal rights, their personal privacy, and they're probably violating the Constitution while doing it. So after all of this leaked information came out, there was a large outcry from European leaders, and Obama responded. <laughs> His response was essentially, you know what, all other nations collect intelligence, even you, the countries who are crying about how we do it, so why are you complaining? <laughs> Which obviously he didn't say that word for word, but that was essentially the message was like, you know what, all countries gather intelligence, the countries who are complaining, you gather intelligence, so don't create a double standard here. But also, I mean, I don't know how other countries collect their uh, intelligence, but it definitely seems like this was a pretty large infringement on personal rights. President Obama, he said, and he was present when all this happened, he said that the leaks had revealed, quote, methods to our adversaries that could impact our operations, end quote. The person who leaked the Pentagon Papers said that it was the most significant leak in U.S. history, which is saying something if he's saying that this was the most significant link. Leak. Wow, I cannot say leak. I always want to say link. Many government leaders in the United States, they said that it did a large damage to the United States intelligence community and capabilities. It went so far as the former CIA director, James Woolsey, he said that if Edward were to be convicted of treason, that Edward should be hanged. Yikes. Despite a lot of government officials criticizing what Edward had done, there was also a lot of support for him. Former Congressman Ron Paul, he said that Edward was a hero for revealing how the United States government was spying on their people, and he should be thanked for his sacrifice. One other quote that, all, that I really liked, it was from uh, former Vice President Al Gore, and he said that Edward, quote, clearly violated the law, so you can't say, okay, what he did is all right. It's not. But what he revealed in the course of violating important laws included violations of the United States Constitution that were way more serious than the crimes he committed. In the course of violating important laws, he also provided an important service because we needed to know how far this has gone, end quote. Besides reactions from prominent political figures, there was a large debate on privacy and warrantless domestic surveillance because remember, it wasn't like the NSA was going to court and getting warrants for these searches. These searches, this data gathering, it was just happening and it was just happening to literally anybody. It wasn't people who were, sus I mean, it wasn't limited to people who maybe were suspected of being a terrorist, maybe suspected of being a foreign national. It was legit just ordinary people like you and me, their phone records if they uploaded something to Microsoft Cloud. It was all being tracked and there was almost no oversight and not a lot of people knew that this was going on. There was huge debates, split opinions about if this was necessary, if it's not, was it invasion of privacy, was it too much of an invasion of privacy, did Edward go too far? And one thing that Edward talked about which I think brings up a good point is Obviously, people give up rights to live in an organized society. If this were a completely free society, people would be allowed to go around and murder people and there would be no punishment. But 
most people don't want to be murdered and they don't want to murder people, so they're okay giving up their rights to murder people so that way if a murder does happen, there's punishment. There's never a completely free, organized society because people give up rights to live in it. That's just how society works. And Edward talked about, are we comfortable as a society giving up our privacy, our digital privacy, for quote-unquote safety? Some people might say, you know what, I think the government was right in doing this because they probably found dangerous people by doing this. Other people might say, no, this was way too far. Why are you tracking literally everybody? Why don't we just limit the search to people who have, I don't know, committed murders or are suspected of being a terrorist? Like, why are we, why are we tracking Mrs. Jones, the school teacher down the road? Why are we tracking her? Because of the information that Edward leaked, there were a lot of court cases that were filed based on the constitutionality of the data surveillance programs exposed by Edward. On September 2nd of 2020, a U.S. federal court ruled that the system exposed by Edward was illegal and possibly unconstitutional. So when this went to court, <laughs> the justice system was like, yeah, what was happening there was illegal and likely unconstitutional. So is it a good thing that he brought it forward? Some people are going to argue, yes, my constitutional rights were, rights were violated. Some people are going to say, mm, I don't know, you know, as long as my house isn't being searched, I'm fine with it. It's, it's a big debate. In 2015, the USA Freedom Act was passed, which imposed some limitations on the bulk collection of telecommunication data on U.S. citizens by American intelligence agencies, which is what was going on before, and while not directly attributed it, I think I added an extra syllable there. <laughs> While not directly attributed it, attributed, oh my goodness. While not directly credited, there we go, to Edward, it was thought, it was like mainly believed that his actions led to this bill being passed. And then the United Nations, they adopted a resolution which denounced unwarranted digital surveillance, but it was a non-binding resolution. And also resolutions are usually just like, hey, we as a legislature want to support this, but then they don't actually pass a bill. So from my understanding, the resolution was more symbolic than anything else, but I think it does send an important message that people are not happy with unwarranted digital searches of their citizens, especially citizens who are not suspected of doing anything wrong. Finally, what does Edward do now besides living in Russia? From what I can tell, he gives talks and speeches and he makes quite a bit of money doing so. He of course always appears digitally because if he were to come back for the, to the United States, he would be arrested for his crimes. And in August of 2020, the Department of Justice announced that Edward had collected around $1.2 million in speaking fees as well as advancements on books. He wrote a book called Permanent Record, which was published in 2019. And to end on a quote from Edward, which I think wraps this up nicely, it was in that video that was released, filmed in Hong Kong, which I mentioned earlier. Edward said, quote, The greatest fear I have regarding the outcome for America of these disclosures is that nothing will change. People will see in the media all of these disclosures. They'll know the lengths the government is going to grant themselves power unilaterally to create greater control over American society and global society, but they won't be willing to take the risks necessary to stand up and to fight to change things, to force the representatives to actually take a stand in their interests. End quote. 
And that concludes Edward Snowden and the NSA leak. This episode is super interesting because I think it brings up a really good debate of how much are people willing to give up to live in society? Most people probably are okay giving up the right to murder people so that there is a punishment system in place, so if people murder people, they get punished. Most people are probably willing to give up some freedom of speech to the point of where they can't directly threaten to kill somebody, you know, without potentially facing punishment. But are people okay giving up their digital privacy for quote-unquote the greater good? Some people are going to say, you know what, if them having my phone data helps ensure that other people's phone data who may be dangerous, who may want to go kill somebody, or who may want to go blow something up and kill people is the sacrifice I have to make for my safety, for other people's safety. I'm okay with that. Some people are going to say, no, it just needs to be focused on those people. And that's the debate around this. Is Edward a hero for bringing this to light? Or is Edward a traitor? Because he now turned a bunch of people against the government for what, what what they were doing to, in some people's mind, keep people safe. And I think that's a decision that only you as an individual can make. Is he a hero? Is he a traitor? And how much are you willing to give up to ensure that you live in a safe society? And on that note, I am going to read the personal scandal that was sent in for this week. This one has to do with church scandals, I was just kind of like, hey, what is a scandalous thing that happened in your hometown with a church? And someone sent in that there was an industrial laundry run by nuns where unmarried mothers would live providing slave labor. The babies were often adopted without their mother's consent. Yikes. (laughs) That it honestly kind of reminds me of the Irish baby homes in Ireland that I did an episode over. Ugh. That's a rough episode. You should go listen to it. (laughs) But yeah, so thanks so much for sending in that scandal. And thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was definitely super interesting to research. I had always heard the name Edward Snowden, and I only really knew that he had released some documents, but I didn't really know much else than that. So I hope you enjoyed. And if you would like to stay up with the latest on social media, follow us on Instagram at Scandal101Podcast, on Twitter, Scandal101Pod, on Facebook, search Scandal101Podcast. You'll find us there. The website is scandal 101 podcast.podbean.com where you can find the show notes and there's also a link to them in the episode description and the email to send your personal scandal to if you want it read on the podcast is scandal101podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode and this has been episode 38 of Scandal 101.